Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Absolutely delighted to have this opportunity to interview a very courageous and dynamic young woman named Rachel Ingstrom, whose book titled Wife, Widow, Now What? How I Navigated the Cancer World and How You Can Too is a life changer for those facing cancer, their caregivers, and anyone else who wishes to strive for happiness and fulfillment despite tremendous hardships. Rachel will be speaking to us today from Apple Valley, Minnesota. Rachel was only 28 years old when her 35-year-old husband was diagnosed with cancer. At the time, she knew no one else going through what she was, so she had to research and dig deep to find the resources that adequately met her needs regarding diagnosis and treatment decisions, time off from work, disability, navigating insurance, finding support groups, and locating resources to to provide additional funding. It was through all this and more that Rachel became a resource who could connect friends, family members, and others to those cancer resources as well. Becoming a cancer wife, then a young widow, transformed Rachel's life in countless ways. She learned by trial and error how to care less about plans, let the chips fall where they may, and live in the moment. Her husband felt supported. She took care of household chores. She showed up at work. She learned to take care of her own needs, and she strove to survive each challenging day. What a gal. (laughs) After her husband passed, Rachel moved herself forward from pain, suffering, and intense grief to a successful new life filled with love and rebirth. I'm eager to hear about Rachel's life before and after her husband was diagnosed with cancer, how she coped when she became a cancer widow, how she dealt with her intense grief, and why she wrote, Wife, Widow, Now What? to help herself and others. This will surely be a compelling and touching interview. Hey, Rachel, a warm, heartfelt welcome to Grief Rebirth Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today, Irene. Oh, it's like so my pleasure, truly. Let's begin our interview with this question. Please tell us about your life and career before you met your husband, your courtship and marriage, and how you reacted when you found out that your husband had cancer. Yeah, so I moved to Minnesota in the fall of 2000, so it'll be 21 years now seems crazy um as a bright-eyed bushy-tailed as my mother would say 18 year old from a smallish town to me 40,000 was small 
in Michigan, not knowing one person. And I moved here, uh, got my bachelor's degree in anthropology, cultural anthropology, and uh, went to the University of Minnesota, fell in love with the cities. I had, we call them the cities because Minneapolis and St. Paul are adjoining. Um, I had this plan in life, you know, I was going to live, I don't know where I thought the money would come from, but I was going <laughs> to live here for college and then travel there and here and there. And I ended up just falling in love and staying here. And I've been here the whole time. And sophomore year, first semester, I went to a party of a friend of mine that was having someone I knew from the dorm. She was having a party with, um, for her boyfriend and her boyfriend worked with this older guy, older, meaning I was 19 and he was about to be 26. And, you know, my life as I knew it was, studying, sleeping, studying, sleeping, hanging out with friends on the weekends, doing things with that. So it was very nice and easy to fold into the mix, this guy. Um, I actually had a friend that ended up turning out to be a little bit of a psycho. So he was really nice. She was very threatened by my relationship with him. So it was very nice to have this very kind person who wanted to spend time with me when I had, you know, no family or anything here. Um, and we just hit it off. We became the best of friends. And when I was 22 in the spring of 2004, I graduated with my bachelor's degree. And then we got married the following August at the Wabasha Street Caves, which was a place back in the day during prohibition where you could drink and swing dance and things like that. So they had it all like fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we got married there and, you know, all the years later, my dad would always say, well, what did you expect? You got married in a cave. <laughs> um, <laughs> he still will say that on the anniversary of the, it'll, it, what's crazy is, you know, Grayson's been gone for eight years now, but it's, I still, you remember all those things like next Friday will have been 17 years. So I still text and we'll say, and my dad will, you know, say that, or we'll say, Hey, remember decorating the cave or whatever. By the way, I uh -huh. have to say before you go on that uh, from reading your book, your parents are wonderful. I they fell in are. love with your father. Oh my God. Your mother is such a doll. I mean, people will really relate to, they were amazing when you went through amazing when you went through your, your, trauma Oh, they're so crisis. fun. So that at the time in the book, they'd been married when he got sick in 2011, they'd been married 45 years. Now it's 55 years. Oh, they sound just um, wonderful. What they're a downsizing their house. And I go to, I go there in the summer every year. I drive the 10 and a half hours to their house in Michigan and make my mom go through all kinds of stuff and use cartoon voices to try to soften the blow. And do you really need it? And they're just, they're most, the most amazing people. And that's where I just, I came through so clearly in the book. Oh my goodness. That's one of the amazing things that, you know, despite all this horrible stuff happening, this we have this relationship that's just incredible. Um, I had some uh, trigger trauma yesterday, which we'll get to, that was total other side type thing. And I called there who I wanted to call. Um, so back to, we had, he worked nights, he worked three to 11 in a printing factory where they would make say, you know, when you go to a salon and you get like the little bag to put your shampoo in, that's kind of the shiny thing. He would make that, he would literally mix the, the big gigantic couple hundred pound drums of ink. He'd mix the colors mm -hmm. that got printed on that plastic. 
So he did that 3 to 11 p.m. Monday through Friday. So the whole time we dated until he got sick. So 2001 through 2011, I didn't see him Monday through Friday. So I think that that what's crazy is that really prepared me, which I didn't know at the time, to be so independent because I had my own career, my friends, my life while still having this security with this person. Um, and you had a really wonderful relationship with him. I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, it came through very clearly. I mean, you were really best friends. Yeah. And I mean, there were stupid growing pains in my twenties and different things. And, you know, it was cool. Cause I got to figure out who I really was as an adult. And, you know, he kind of helped, I hate saying usher me into it, but you know, when all those things and insecurities and you don't know, and you're figuring out money and falling on your face and all those types of things, you know, I, I definitely was one of my only friends, you know, to get married at 22 and things like that. Um, so I found out in the summer of 2010, I just had started having these horrific ovarian cyst rupture, things like that. Found out my health would just crap. Um, that's what it <laughs> seemed like. Uh, I found out I had endometriosis. So then we um, had Chinese food on New Year's Eve. And I thought, you know what? Next year's going to be better. It has to be better. Uh, we had the house, we had the dog just seemed natural. We were wanting to have a baby now. Um, so he gets a fortune cookie on December 31st, 2010. And it says you're about to have a major life change. What we don't expect is that 15 days later, he's diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Holy and holy. Our, we're, it's just like, you're just going down the slide. Like you've been sitting in the park and someone just kicks you down the slide. So uh, what were his never, symptoms? What were his symptoms that got you to the yeah. doctor? That diagnosis was he very, very unbelievably tired? What was? Yeah, was he was. Cancer. I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and I found him sitting on the floor in our kitchen because he was too tired to even wait for the microwave for like ninety seconds. So we went to the doctor. They just thought he was anemic. Um, he was six two, naturally around one hundred and seventy five, one hundred eighty pounds. He was on the thin side. Um, but you know, it's like, we knew he could lift those 200 pound drums of ink. He seemed pretty healthy, all those things, but he had been a little pale, but he'd been himself normal humor wise. Although he was working extra overtime, um, forced to work that till, you know, sometimes midnight, one, two in the morning. Um, and I didn't know until later when he was diagnosed and he started talking more about his swim symptoms he was sweating like a ton at night, sweating. And what's funny is a few years later, or just a couple of years ago, I was, I freaked out because I was sweating at night and I thought, oh my gosh, I oh my God. it just turns out if you eat something sugary before bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I had had ice cream or whatever, you know, a couple of nights in a row, but he was sweating profusely, like through his clothes. Um, wow. Yeah, just very, very tired, not kind of like you have the flu. Um, so after a lot of tests and then a bone marrow biopsy, they were able to confirm, yes, in fact, this is what you have. Um, he was misdiagnosed with something and we thought, okay, this is kind of crappy, but we'll, we'll deal with it. And then they called and said, no, you know, you have, you know, we need you to come in for this test. And kind of just, I knew in that instant that he had cancer. Wow. Wow, wow. And I just was 
stoically calm. And what's amazing is I'd say 90% of the time through his, I credit it to my faith in God, but like 90% through his 27 months of illness before he died, I was stoically calm so many times. And I think that that was just for better lack of terms, I went to an amusement park for the first time in, I don't know, 10 years or something last Saturday. And you know, when you're like buckled in and you're starting to go up and you're like, oh crap, what did I sign up for? You can't, all you can really do is just ride the ride. You're there. So I was riding the ride and that's how I was living. And I was just, I really took it head on. I don't know if it's because I was 28. I don't, I mean, I'm 39 now. I'm not old by any means, but like I think it was just, and you read it, I was very simply like, okay, well, I'm going to go get a heated blanket. I'm going to get the cot. I'm going to sleep here. I'm going to bring, bring stuff into the hospital room. I, I just very quickly adapted because it was like, kind of like, it's go time. This is what we need to do. This is what we're going to do. And when you're the caregiver, you don't have the luxury to believe anything, but that they're going to be fine. They're going to be better at the end of the half an hour. They're going to have the lovey-dovey music at the end of the show. Things are going to go back to normal. Um, so I was, I, I basically was just very calm and I was thinking, you know, oh crap, I don't want him to die. I don't want him to die. And then figuring out, you know, how to navigate the world of all of that with the resources, um, which I'll talk about, but it was more of, all right, this is our new norm. I can't change it. So I you better must have, up. You, you must have gotten depressed sometimes and overwhelmed sometimes because I know that music became a lighthouse in the storm for you. So what was that about? Because you really. Yeah, I think music has always been such a huge key thing for me. I can remember my sister for her fifth birthday party. I was three Her having like 15 friends over and a big poster of Michael Jackson on the front window and it's all dancing in the front yard and it's like I am the oldest of four so I grew up with I didn't grow up with the Wiggles or Raffi or whatever it was Michael Jackson and Prince and all those things so it's just been inherently such a calming thing and that was such a big part of my life with Grayson we would go to concerts we would listen to music at home so the 20 depending on traffic the 20 to 30 minute drive to and from the hospital, that was time when I wasn't talking to someone detoxing on the phone to family or friend or whatever. That was just time that allowed me to zone out, just to hear it, zone out and just be. Cause it was like, you're more focused on the lyrics. You're more focused on the, it's like, so he was diagnosed in January of 2011. And it's like, when you're driving around and it's so cold and it's sometimes negative 10 in the winter, Music makes, it almost makes the air crisper that your surroundings come in more and it envelopes you, especially if you're turning it up louder and you're the only one in the car, but it envelopes you in a comfort that you're not going to get from humans that you can't get anywhere else. It's, it's going to be there. And especially listening to my boyfriend, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> who's who's from your state where you are of course absolutely but, but yeah it was just one of those things where you know and that which what Irene is referring to is in the book I have a playlist of the major songs that I can remember that I listened to within each year of the I love that I thought that was so cool yeah and it's just it's one of those things because it's so 
it can take you away. You know, you can have no money at all and listen to a song and it can be a vacation. It can be a, an oasis. It can be whatever. And I would watch my husband have poisons dripped into his veins, i.e. chemo. And he would just have his eyes shut listening to music. And, you know, it was just, you can't, yeah, you, you can't fully can get that unless yeah. you're going through it. Well, I identified with that also because when I lost my husband, I used to do the same thing. Of course, I'm a different generation than you are. So the playlist was a little different, but I would do the same kind of thing. And I'd fill my car and I'd sing along with it. And through the tears, it was like helping me to keep on going. Tell everybody what inspired you to write your book to help yourself and others and to help others feel less alone. Yeah, well... It was so tricky to be me, (laughs) for better lack of terms. In the book, my poster in chronological order of Caring Bridge, which if you're not familiar with it, is instead of being inundated with text, emails, phone calls from your supporters, it's a website where when you're going through a medical journey, it's caringbridge.com. Um, you well, that's kind of stop because that's good for people to hear. So yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, you're not, you're not paying me to say this, but it's caringbridgealsquishedtogether.com. And I have all these resources in my book too. Mm-hmm. So when you have a medical update, you just do a quick little blog, you shoot it off and anyone that wants to know about it has subscribed and they get an email about it. So my book is the Caring Bridge post plus Team Grayson, which for Facebook post later, I have Instagram after he died. I have a healing blog. I right in a smaller group of friends on Facebook, but I put all of it in chronological order and I started piecing it together in 2014, February, 2014. Um, and he died in April of 2013. And I thought one day, like, I can still remember where I was standing and I'm in a different house now, but where I was standing in my house and my bedroom thinking, oh my gosh, this is something I can do. This was so hard. And I want to help other people because I felt so isolated so this is redundant, but so isolated, so alone. And you really do feel like you're just in this fishbowl and you're the only fish looking out at the rest of the world. You were such a brave, you were such a brave fish. You were like such a courageous fish when you read your your book. It was like, wow. I, you know, amazing. Yeah. So what I did is what I decided to do is, okay, if you're going through an illness and I'm realizing more and more, so this came out, the book, I published it on Amazon in, um, and I wanted to do it where I could do it my own way and go back and make edits or whatever, if I wanted years later. Uh, so I put it all together, put it on Amazon, got it out at the end of September last year. And you don't think about the fact that when you're writing it and you're writing it about cancer, it's going to be applicable to all the COVID people all these things. So the more I talk about it, the more it's, it's applicable to all of these things, but I have how to, when I'm navigating diagnosis, treatment, insurance, disability, finances, all these things, I have budget charts. I have all these things because when you're in the thick of it, all you really think are, I don't want my person to die. I have to figure out health insurance. How's it going to be paid for? Um, or I should say, I don't want them to die, the medical care, then insurance. And how do I get some time off of work? If you're someone that's working, those are the top right. four things. And if you have children, you know, who's going to take care of the kids if I need to be there. 
Um, and we did not have children. I should say that. So, but even then we had animals who's going to come let the dog out, all those things. So I have all the logistics of when you're in your fog, thrown into boot camp, into a foreign territory. Um, you, it's like day one of boot camp and they're like, here, kid, here's a gun, go fight the enemy. You don't get your training. And that's what happens with something like this. So I thought, I want a guide where you can read it. You can feel comfort. Like we're having a cup of tea. I'm holding your hand. I'm telling you how I did it, but also here are all the resources. I mean, it's so wonderful it, because a person can look at it and they can say, wow, okay, check. I got this covered. I got this covered. And you made it so much easier for people when they're going through something like this. Yeah. So I have, um, I started putting it together in February of 2014, like I said, and then it just became too painful. Um, because I was reliving it, I was having PTSD, those poster illness going towards death, which I don't know are going towards death. So in the fall of 2018, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and I would write for like eight hours and then cry for like 20 minutes. But it was so therapeutic. But what was interesting is I edited the book myself eight times. I had a professional editor as well. But every time I did it, I distanced myself farther, farther, farther and farther away to the point where I felt just devastated for this woman, for this girl. And it was just blew my mind that it was me, but I was able to do it in a way where part Rachel part one, you don't know is part one is his illness. Part two is when I walk out the door after he's died and his body is there. And I, um, navigate, you know, how to have a funeral as a 31 year old, how to have a memorial service, how to do these things, how to do finances, how to afford a house or attempt to afford a house. You thought you'd fill with children. You thought your spouse would be there. You thought your spouse would help you pay for all of these things. Um, well, those things fell on you, but you also went to therapy to get help. Didn't you? I did. Oh my goodness. So I actually connect people to therapy for a living. I've done that almost six oh, years. Oh, I now. think that's I am so yeah. I am so it's such a proponent of that. That's great. I think it should be subsidized. Everyone should have therapy. I agree. It's so amazing. So I went to a therapist a little almost a year after he got sick. Um, so saw someone a year plus before he died. And it was just amazing because it was someone that was familiar with illnesses, someone that'd be able to say, Rachel, have you tried this? Try A, B, and C. And I literally would have like spring in my step and be like, you know, almost bouncing to my car because when you have someone that is ill, you can't put your crap on them. You have to kind of suck it up, keep it inside, have your other external um, person. And not that he didn't know anything, but, you know, as you read, there are, there's lots of times where they're out of it. They're doped up. They're well, out he's of it. Doped they, up, he's reacting. He's got all kinds of chemi chemicals in him and every other drugs in and him. You're and you're not going to get the, you're not going to lay that support. on him for he's fighting for his life. Yeah. And even my parents, there was so much that didn't even need to be talked about because we were both viewing it and we were all just surviving. So for the listeners, my parents who, um, we're retired and older. Like I said, my mom was 65. My dad was 72. Now they're 75 and 82 and God love them. They're just amazing. And my dad's like, he, man, he looks my mom. When I was there a few weeks ago, she's, I called him old. She's like, he's not old. And I'm like, he's, he's like 65, but he's 82 mom. He's old. 
they're just, they were just the most amazing people. And they came and took shifts because he was in the hospital for five weeks. And then he had, when he came home, I told you he weighed 175, 180 pounds. He weighed 145. He was tiny. I was just so scared that he was going to break himself. But if he got a fever or anything, he'd have to go in the hospital right away. But he was in this clinical trial here at the University of Minnesota Hospital. And he had chemo five times a week for like three months, then three times a week for two months. So I wouldn't have been able to handle any of that. And what's hilarious is you think like, oh my gosh, I'm 28. I don't want my dad to fold my laundry and fold my underwear. I don't want my mom to be like all up in my business, but it ended up being incredible. (laughs) It was wonderful. And they, they, you like, I didn't even realize till years later, I knew it, but like how much they sacrificed by not even being together for weeks or months or, you know, all these things. And they say, oh, we would have done it for any of our children and their spouses. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I'm the baby and I really needed you. And thank oh, you. God, they were amazing. I mean, like here you're, you're going through this all this intense grieving and going through this heartache. So you're getting support from the outside, but you also had that amazing familial support from, you know, your folks. Yeah, so important. you're just living day to day. You're living like when you're driving somewhere and you snap back into focus and you realize you haven't been focusing completely. And you're like, oh, oh my gosh, thanks God for keeping me on the road. I'm not dead. You know, I could have crashed into, we all have that happen. That's what it's like. You're living on autopilot. Um, you're just on this merry-go-round you can't get off of. So seeing a therapist, having someone to talk to, um, I have tricky stuff in my life now, all these years later. Um, I just think it's great to be able to have someone that can give you suggestions because it doesn't matter whether you're a therapist yourself or how much, you know, you know, my, I, my master's in social work, it doesn't matter how much I know and how much I can help other people. You still need someone on the outside that can say, I can see through the windows of your house, even though they're dirty, I can see that you need to fix, you know, a, B and C to get to the root of what you're talking about. So yeah, I think having someone to talk to definitely that's not friend or family that knows nothing because what's so beneficial about that is they're your person. They're in your corner and they're going based off what you're telling them, not anyone else. We have so many relationships and things in our life that are um, swayed by external factors, whether it's people or whatnot. And it's just so important um, to have this person that's yours. That's right. And not only that, she's a safe, she, it was a she or he, mm-hmm. she, she's, she. A safe, she's a safe place to vent. You know, you don't want to lay, I mean, like you say, your folks are doing all this stuff for you, but you don't want to lay that much on them. Right. So you were able to, to let it fly while you, when you saw her it, I, yeah. therapy, and I, I find it to be invaluable. Um, there's also an organization you talked about in the book called seven cups of tea. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I know of it. I've never used it myself, but I know of it. It's really cool. So it's it's an online website for counseling. There's so much more of that due to COVID, but it's one of those telehealth type things where you can be connected with a counselor anytime, 24-7. You can do it free for like a certain amount of time. They also have a sliding scale. So if you wanted to be regular connect regularly connected with someone, but it's just really neat to have a resource so many people unfortunately still don't have insurance and different things like that but it's a website you can just go on there and you can sign up and you can talk to someone and there's qualified people that can give you resources and help you out that's wonderful um so now you're unfortunately grayson passes and now i'm you were filled with fears 
but also excitement about moving forward in your life. Do you want to talk about that? I mean, talk about conflicted. Woohoo! Yeah, you know, it was kind of like, <laughs> I remember literally like waking up, clapping my hands in, in bed and getting up and saying, let the healing begin. Because it was like, well, crap, but not that weird. Like, what am I going to do now? And it's, you know, it's like I walk down the street because it's just down the it's like my house, another house, then the end of the block, then the street, then two more houses and there's our church. So I walk down there and I know that I have to do this memorial service and I walk in and there's like the gold LeMay couch and you'd think that, you know, Gladys and Gerald or whoever have sat there to plan their, their memorial services and it just over the decades and it just hits me like I'm a W-I-D-O-W. What am I going to do? So it was just kind of a domino effect of figuring out how to navigate everything, figuring out, you know, I had a beautiful ceremony. Everyone wore bright colors. I played the music I wanted in my wedding or excuse me, my, um, my funeral. It was very bizarre because it was like a wedding where you're going down the aisle, you're, um, people are looking at you, (laughs) you know, it's just all of these things. So once all that was done, the pomp and circumstance of that, I just slept, I slept and slept and slept. Um, I went to, which I know was one of your questions. I went to Alaska. Yeah. Um, for that was very cool. Yeah. I went for 17 days and I always said, you know, tell me what you will. I've seen a Titanic. I will not go yeah. on a cruise, but I also didn't think I'd be but able to. How brave. You went all by yourself. You went all by yourself. Yeah. And what was really cool is when the boat was about to take off, I started crying and said, show me you're here. Show me a sign and an eagle kid you not eagle like swooped down turned its head looked me in the eye and uh flew away and I was like okay I know you're here (laughs) (laughs) but it was just it was one of those things that was amazing because when you have something this catastrophic happen you see glaciers and mountains and God's beauty and all these things and it really just snaps into focus that you're the size of a pea there are gazillion people on this planet a million and million and million of them have probably been somewhat near to the same thing that you have and you're going to be okay because they've been okay. It's common. It's not maybe common among the people that you know, but it does happen and you're going to be okay. And what was a trip about this trip was that there were so many things I was like, man, I wish he was here. He would have enjoyed this. He would have seen it. But I felt the same way when I was watching the series finale of the office as well and I was like oh he's never gonna see this and I because we always watch it together and I'm like he has unlimited cable up there he can watch right yeah so um did I just lose you no I'm here I have to welcome in my iPad I'm sorry okay so then um it was just a summer of navigating having horrific pain horrific pelvic pain, barely being able to walk. The week before I did um, go to but I want to explain, I want to clarify for our listeners, you were having pelvic pain because you were having problems with your endometriosis, right? Correct, yeah. And yep. now you've when lost you- your husband, you're having physical problems. When you took off for Alaska, were you still having those physical problems? I was, I was oh on my God. all the time. This was before the big opiate epidemic, even though that's been an epidemic for decades. 
Um, and I know that from working in mental health or whatever, but I mean, I was like popping Vicodin or Percocet at least once a day, if not twice, cause just walking things hurt. And it was like, I'm 31. I'm like a grandma. What is going on? But the week before that, I went to a friend's house and I ended up while I was there, I got a gigantic peacock feather tattooed on the inside of one of my calves of the word serendipity because it had been like a little over two months since he died. Despite awful things happening, I was moving into almost like I was a snake, even though I'm deadly scared of snakes that had shed my scanner. We'll just say a buffalo that had molted. <laughs> well, we would call it. We would we would call it in uh, grief and rebirth. We would say you're you were starting to rebirth yourself. Yes, I was starting to rebirth myself, and I was becoming comfortable and just happy in the small things, happy in the little things, you know, whether it was then or months later, when you just start to like belly laugh, watching sitcoms or whatever. And you just realize I'm okay. It's going to yeah. be okay. So I wanted to mark that down. And, you know, my parents, every time I have many tattoos, I have six, every time my parents, every time I got a new one, my parents would die. We are mutilating your body. But, you know, these are my, you know, big things right. to re- to remind me of, of, you know, those things. So I remember being on the boat, looking at this peacock feather that, you know, was still painful because it'd only been a week and I'm taking my pain pills or whatever. And I'm thinking, how the hell did I get from a hospital room with a dying husband to this beauty in Alaska? And I have no idea what's going to happen, but it's going to be okay. And it's kind of like when you have a vacation and you, you have a few things planned, you're going to do this was pre-COVID when we could all go somewhere. That's supposed to be funny. It's probably not. But <laughs> when you when you're like on it and you're you're like, ooh, I have five days left. I have four days left. I, have, I my life was like that. And I would picture where he and I went to Colorado a couple times um, to a house his aunt let us use of hers. It was just you'd see the road, you'd see the open land and the mountains, and that's what I would think. And I would see that with the sun shining and I would that would that was my roadmap of what I saw and I had no idea what was farther down the road but I was just living and believing that God had a plan there was a purpose I didn't know what it was so I just I just kept living that way and then unfortunately my pain became too bad I couldn't take it anymore so I went to um my gyno surgeon the gynecological surgeon and said can I get a hysterectomy and he said pretty much you know, kid, are you sure? I can't put it back in once I take it out. And I said, yes. So, <laughs> well, it's the, either that or live in pain the rest of my life. I mean, come on. Right. So I, um, that was another loss. So I did that in September. That was a whole nother loss, a whole nother thing. And it was just really bizarre to do this gigantic thing and not have him there. But, um, you know, it was time to choose myself. It was time to choose health. And what was so interesting after he died is I was used to the ecosystem of the hospital, all the people I knew, all these things. And now I had my detached ecosystem of supporters. They were still in my life, but people go back to their normal lives after the catastrophic illness or the loss or whatever. So it was kind of like, I just have to pick and choose positivity. I had a best friend of 12 years that became totally toxic. I was her maid of honor. I pulled out of her wedding. Um, she just became really rude, really toxic, very judgmental. 
it's one of those things you don't realize until you have something happen like this. And I don't know if it happened to you, but it's, it's one of those things where when you leave a job, how you have like your work friends at work, and then you realize once you're not there anymore. Oh yeah. We really didn't talk to each other outside of work. I guess we're not that close. You revamp your support, your people, um, you know, all those types of things. So it was, it was very much a learning and rebirth process. Absolutely. And we have so much in common. After my husband died, I took a trip to Hawaii by myself. And I also changed relationships because the other thing is, I think you, you start to grow. You've been through a, a, you've been through something so traumatic that your perspective changes. You now see things from a, a whole different viewpoint and other people in your life, they don't share that same perspective anymore. So your relationships start to change. You know, I have to tell you, we talked about this. I was blown away by your mother-in-law's cruelty through this whole thing. Oh my God, what she put you through on top of everything you went through and thank God for your wonderful parents, but on top of everything, her son was dying, everything that was going on and she was so awful to you. But you did have a silver lining because navigating that extremely toxic relationship prepared you for another challenge that would appear later in your life. So I hate to have you revisit this, but please tell our our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience about your delightful mother-in-law and how the lessons you learned while dealing with her eventually helped you with another toxic relationship you encountered later on. And that's what happens. These things build on each other. These are our lessons. They really do. And you're like, aha, God, not funny, not funny. Right. So I think it wouldn't have mattered who he married his mom wouldn't have liked she was almost creepy to the point of like you can't make those kind of decisions your mom not wife or would try to would try to do things I remember when we were dating she came over and I'd had a or no we were early married on early on married and um she came over and we had like rearranged furniture and some lights because his birthday was on Halloween and they came over the next day and She's like, wow, with this lamp in here, it actually looks civilized. Like she was just cool, oh. just awful, just awful. And she would be super manipulative and rude behind his back. And then we would fight the hour and a half on the way home in the car because I'd talk about it. And his dad had died when he was a teen. So you really don't want to believe that your other parent's awful. No one wants to believe that their parent's awful. Um. And then years later, she was rude to both of us. So he experienced it. Oh, wow. But While he but was a, sick? While he was sick? A little bit before, but yeah, both. Wow. It's one of the, but it's, you know, I stole her baby when I, you know, was in my early 20s. And we were, because I met him when I was 19. He died two days after I turned 31. But it's like, I had dyed my hair black, blue, black, pink, purple, all these colors. I had pierced my nose. I had pierced my eyebrow. Oh my gosh, I didn't eat meat. What am I going to feed you? What am I going to do? Then later I had tattoos. It was just all these things were not in her wheelhouse of acceptability. Um, and because she couldn't control that, she would just lash out and she was rude. But it was all passive, passive aggressive behavior. Um, and I didn't understand the term at the time. I didn't know narcissist. I didn't know about narcissist. I didn't know about all those types of things. I knew what it was and I knew that it wasn't right, but I didn't know the term. 
And all these years later, um, two and so I had, I struggled quite a bit to date when you're, um, a widow, it's really hard widow or widower, because you, in most situations, I would think you don't have, I mean, it's, I felt, I just want to back up and say, I feel like I was able to be positive and move on because I was so loved and I loved so much. I know it's very difficult with a lot of people, whether it's a parent or significant other or spouse that might not have had a good relationship. Um, I also was allowed the beauty of seeing his, as awful as it was, his body fall apart. It wasn't a car wreck like yours or something. It made sense to me. You had time in a way you had time. Like mine was very sudden. And it was a yeah. shock where you really had time to assimilate what was going on. And you were in therapy the whole time. You were processing it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I until five days before he died, when I was told I'm sorry, I literally didn't think he was going to die because I thought we're young, we're invincible. You know, it's going to be fine. But I dated and it wasn't working and it wasn't working. And I had my house on the market and it didn't sell and all these things. And then I get a new job and lo and behold, the guy in the cube next to me, 11 years older is the guy that as of this fall, I will have been married to for five years. Um, so I met him two and a half years after um, Grayson died. And he has a daughter who the daughter's biological mother is a very toxic, very, very, very similar person to my mother-in-law. And it's just, it's an incredible, the, the similarities, but the life lessons that are learned that have prepared me to come to this point and whether it's talking to someone that's been in a similar, similar situation or a podcast or an article I write or a conversation or whatever, it's really amazing how alike situations are. And it might not be someone within your network or friends that is with, I should say, within your Christmas card list. Right, right. But it's, it's so common that these things are going on and that they're happening. And I just really feel as awful as that was Rachel 1.0 went through with this horrible mother-in-law. It's beautiful that it gave me skills for today. (laughs) Absolutely. You know what you learn when you're dealing with people like that? I mean, this has happened to me too. You don't take it personally anymore. You see it, that that's their problem. That's who they are. Like while they're busy lobbing their grenades at you, it's really, it's just, it's their stuff. It's really yeah, it, got to the point, it got to the point where his mom, with his mom, where it was just, and I, I feel like that was a lot of maturity for me in my twenties to be able to say, I think so too. to be able to say like, that's unfortunate. This is what she's like. And right. I used to, I used you to didn't like, personalize it, which is amazing. I was noticing that in the book. You didn't because I, I did, and- I did do a point, but then it was like, when he was sick, it's like, nobody Fs with my baby, you know, or you're lifting the car off the child or whatever. It's just, it's, it's not acceptable. And his, his stepdad, the husband of the mom equally just, you know, I remember there was one time where, um, he sneezed into his hands and we were all in the ICU um, one of the two times that Grayson was in the ICU when I handed him the bottle of hand sanitizer and it was like my mom on one side, then me, then Victoria, the mother-in-law, and then the stepdad on the other side. And I handed her the hand sanitizer and he handed it, she, the mom handed it to the husband and he hit it out of her hand and it 
flew across the room. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, we're sitting in the freaking ICU. Like, oh my God, if I and I was people. like, you need to sanitize your hands. And I'm like, this is a big dude, like physically tall, physically big dude. And I was just like, that's my world in that bed. You can either play by my rules or you can leave. And I was like, even as I said it, I was like, you're so ballsy. (laughs) And he was just like, he asked the nurse and the nurse was like, well, you can, I mean, it wasn't, you know, but it was just, it's, it's one of those things that you have levels of strength and gusto and resilience that you don't even know are there until they have to happen. Yeah. These situations too. What would you say? widowhood and your experience and your experiences with Grayson what would you say bottom line how did they change your life and craft you into who you are today I think just learning grace giving no and no pun intended the grace with Grayson but the one of the biggest things that's a really hard pill to swallow is that we live in such a society of as much as self-care is promoted more now but we want to do everything ourselves we want to take care of everything ourselves when he died it was like well crap now it's time to take care of myself and not that I hadn't been because I was going to concerts every now and then or doing things or you know friends coming to bring me tea or whatever take me out of the hospital for a half an hour or whatever that was but after he died it was a lot of like I'm just at home. I'm so sad. Then I'm like drinking too much. I'm dating too much. I'm still going to church. I'm still reading my devotionals, but the, the, you know, cord has come out of the wall and you're like, why isn't the TV on? Well, duh, plug the cord back in, take care of yourself. But I was living in this widow fog, but I knew because I had had the real love, I was going to be okay. So my key things were knowing I don't know how, but like a light switch at some point within the first couple months, I decided I have to choose positivity. And my older brother that came to help when Grayson first got sick said very early on within the first couple of days, you can choose to be bitter or better. And I have a chapter called Bitter Betty. I wasn't always better, but I, um, I had... I'm pausing because I feel like you asked this, but we talked about it before. So one of the things that I had- I, done, I have to tell you, I love what your brother said to you. You yes, can choose right? to be bitter or better. That's a bottom line for so many people. We all have choice. We do. We all have a choice. And one of the things I think you're going to ask me, so I'm just going to say now is, so the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has a training program yes. called Team and Training where they you pick an event, you can start- there are athletes, but you can start from scratch. So I started from scratch and I, um, I'm sorry, my dog is being obnoxious. You can read about her in the book. Greta. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there are many people listening to us who have their dogs and their cats. Yeah. So um, I walked in the cold from January till June and then in the heat practicing um one night a week and then Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings and I walked and trained while I raised money for blood cancer alongside people that had lost others no one that I was with had lost a spouse but they had lost others they listened they were there so I did a half marathon in Minneapolis in um 
June of 2012 while he was in remission. And then in June of 2014 in San Diego, a year after he died. And then that, um, just that support, that amazingness has carried me through. But why I'm bringing this up is I was trying to fundraise money the second time after he died. And I was so focused on why are you not giving me money? I don't want you to know what it's like to be me. So I need your money that I was less, oh my gosh, they have cutting edge research. They have treatment protocols that um, are used for other forms of cancer now because every three minutes someone's diagnosed with blood cancer. It's the number one childhood form of cancer. It's Wait, terrible. let's say that again because people don't know that. Yeah, it's the three number minutes? one. Every, Someone... Go ahead. Every three minutes someone's diagnosed with blood cancer. Every nine minutes, I believe, someone dies of blood cancer. Wow. So Grayson ultimately... Um, he beat cancer. He had a bone marrow transplant. He had stem cells from umbilical cords, but the chemo radiation, all those things just ripped up his organs. So I had to take him off life support two days after he turned 31 on April 21st, 2013, since we haven't said that yet. But the people that supported me then, and even still now, there are two women, one of them's 59, one of them 61, that were my friends and a a friend and a coach from team and training for through the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. They live a couple miles from me, each of them. And we walk, we walk in the winter, we walk in the summer and they're just the best of friends. They're amazing women that I probably wouldn't be hanging out with people that, right. you know, a couple decades older than me, but I've lost a lot of people and it was extremely painful to lose different people, to have to have relationships change. But there are so many beautiful things that come out of that. And LLS is, they were able to give us a small amount of funding. They were able to give us, um, he went, he had an online support group um, for young adults with blood cancer. He also, we went to one that was in person. Um, you know, he was able to feel part of a community, part of like his people, part of these things. So they are just incredible. And over a 10 week period, this past spring 2021 from March to May with a few friends behind me I raised $51,000 wow. for research for LLS and I'm which means I had to get 50,000 and I bawled my eyes out during the virtual final gala because I reached that 50,000 mark and I get a grant in his name that I put towards a specific kind of lymphoma I know someone that has it's not well researched so I he did extra bone marrow biopsies. He did extra spinal taps. He donated his body to the University of Minnesota. And I'm just helping his legacy live on. And it's just, it's so cool. But I was so bitter that I, um, you know, even when I'm raising funds, it's eight years later. And even when I'm raising funds this past spring, I'm like, you just posted a picture of the like $800 bouncy house. You got your kid for the summer. I know you can give me 20 bucks. You still have these bitter type thoughts. Absolutely. Everyone's got their something and not ever, but I mean, I really do feel like there are some people that go through life that are just smooth sailing and good for them. But for those of us, I'm like, but I don't want, if your kid ends up getting cancer, I want an organ, you know? So there, there's, there's always going to be a little bit of bitterness there. And the day of the event, it was 10 weeks. It was insane. I was, it, I can't ex explain the fatigue that I had of. Oh, what a trauma. 3, you, you took him off life support. 
Yeah, yeah. I was right. actually gonna gonna say Wait, with the. You were how old when you did this? How old were you when you went through 31. this? Thirty-one. Oh my 31. god. Oh, so I was saying like the fatigue of this fundraising campaign this spring. I there's a siren. My 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 dog might go off. I apologize. Um, you know, messaging three thousand people, all these businesses, all these things this past spring, trying to get money. And then it was the day of the event and you'd think I'd be so happy and relieved. And I just cried for like an hour and a half, just in pure red hot anger that cancer steals people, that it does this, that he died, even though I'm happy and I'm in a good place now. And, you know, I yeah, but it's even, triggers you, it brings you back. It does. It does. And yeah. yesterday I have this ginormous, nasty bruise. Yesterday mm -hmm. I went and I gave platelets because this is very prominent about the grief and rebirth I gave platelets for the first time and I you know I'm happily married we have this beautiful child my stepdaughter I love my job I'm in a great place and then I go give platelets and I'm hooked up to these machines in either arm and it just hits me you know I'm in this room if you've never given platelets it's used they're so needed there's a shortage right now it's awful <laughs> Um, so many people donate blood, but platelets are very, very needed. One transfusion of platelets, which takes about two and a half hours, can save three lives. Like wow. a mom needs it after this is baby, important typically. information for people listening. Yeah, it's just cancer patients need them every day, almost sometimes. Bone marrow transplant patients, like my husband, they need them all the time. So I'm hooked up to this machine, literally like with my arms out, and I start watching my Netflix. They have me hooked up to. And it just hits me. This is what he went through. I'm one one hundredth. This is what he went through. And all the times I had to leave him at the hospital and go home or go to work and do all these things that I, I held it together. But then as soon as I got home, I just, this, this was yesterday. I just wailed. I just cried and cried and cried. And I cried for him. I cried for the children I know that have gone through leukemia and lymphoma um, that are now like 13 or 12 and they had three years of it starting when they were nine and their mom died from blood cancer. It's just, it's, oh my gosh. it's just these things. I have a friend that I met that I was trying to find people to help with my book um, last fall. She took care of her husband for two and a half years. Then she got the exact same kind of leukemia. And then he dies four months later. It's just, why do these things happen? But what we can wow. do is educate, educate, educate. And I've chosen to take this horrific experience and say, you know what? I went through this and the key takeaways are get yourself the emotional support surround yourself with positivity. We have so many things at our fingertips. I had times where I took time off social media. It's important to not compare yourself. For me, it was the girl from high school with, she's having her fourth baby. And I'm like, my husband's dead. I don't have a uterus. I don't have a job. I don't have a boyfriend. Like yeah. you know, all these, yeah. Yeah. all these things, but the, what we expose ourselves to even years now, I see like a movie I'm like, oh, that looks good. And then I read the synopsis, whether it's on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime. And I'm like, nope, talks about illness, talks about cancer. Don't do it, Rachel. So the music, movies, TV shows, people, all of it, choose the more positive stuff, especially when you're going through hard stuff, choose the more positive stuff. I think asking for help is so hard. 
I had, you read, I had a really hard time with it because I was Wonder Woman and then he died and it was like, there's no Clark Kent to right. come save Lois Lane. But that was I, a big lesson that you needed to learn because I went through the same thing. I had to suddenly yeah. help have people, I had three big surgeries after what happened to me and I had to let people help me. And when you've been a very independent person and everyone relied on you, that's a big transition in your life. It is, it is, but it's, it's one of those things where it's beautiful when you realize you can use your experience to help other people because, um, you felt so alone in it and you're going to use this knowledge to help other people not feel alone. And it's just awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And it must really make you, I can imagine why you love your work because you're so compassionate and empathetic to people when they are seeking help you have this extra layer of understanding. Rach, you state that even though bad things happen, life does get better, which we're talking about. What is your message about the importance of healing that you would like to share with our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience? I think it's so important to know that you things are going to happen on your own time. I remember I had people that would say one of them was the friend that I had to cut out. It was like, you know, you should just be happy you should just just decide to be happy even my own brother was like you know you should just kind of pick a date you know be be, you know I was dating someone new and he's like yeah you know you should just decide to be happy and it's like it doesn't work that way he even went to the extent of like you know if if his wife if she died I'd be all right and they have like three children they're small children at the time and I told her and she's like that's nice to know but no he wouldn't they've been together for 30 years now no he wouldn't but it's it's one of those things where you only know what's right for you but also I am gonna say you have the time to wallow you have the time to grieve but you need to be actively grieving you need to be working on yourself you need to it's fine if you have some denial for a while. It's fine if you have that. But in order to be a healthy person, you do have to let people in. You have to ask for support. And you need to know that, like we had said, you're really not alone in it. But, you know, there's someone that I know that her husband died a few months before mine. And now it's eight years later and she's still so, in my opinion, God love her, but she's still, I feel like that's the Southern bless her heart. Greta, stop. I'm sorry. Um, it's nice out. She wants to go outside. Um, I feel like she's just so stuck. Like she'll do a Facebook post of the two of them together and say, granted, she was with him like 25 years and I was with Grayson 11 and a half, but she'll just say, I can't wait till I get to see him again or almost like I'm counting the days kind of like thinking, stuck in her swamp of suffering in a way yeah and I'm thinking you're like 58 you can find another person you can even if you don't you can there's so much joy to life she's a mom and a grandma and like I, there's just there's too much to, yes we want to see our loved ones again but there's too much to live for there's too much whether it's the person in the checkout line or at the doctor's office or at the DMV or wherever you are, there's somebody that's going to need you at some point, probably a stranger. Like I'm talking about to say, I'm so sorry. I've been there, you know, that you say that to them and you mean it because 
it's incredible. It's so incredible. The fact that I was able to be with him as he died. There are so many freak accidents, people that come back from war, people that I'm starting to reach out to like veteran organizations and things, because that's such a population where it's just awful, whether there's the PTSD and people take their lives afterwards or, um, you know, they die during war, all these different things. We all have different ways of how death affects us but we all have to deal with it and we all to an extent to a point have to suck it up and it's it's not fair and it's not pretty but more than likely just like people used to put it all on the line and go and pan for gold in the Yukon days in Alaska we and I mean they didn't have their anoraks and nice jackets they had their little blazers and going up there by Marge I might see you I might not (laughs) but we're but we're going through the same things trying and we're getting gold nuggets we don't even know that we're getting it doesn't make it more fair or better or easier but more than likely the awful ugly stuff you're going through is really going to help yourself and other people later it blows my mind that I went from this widow that I call licking the bottom of the barrel of having super low self-worth self-esteem because this guy wasn't liking me and da, 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 da. And I'd been like a happy working wife on a board, a local aging board and, you know, doing all these things to like, oh my gosh, did he text me? And I'm trying to have all these jobs. And it's just like, no, take control of who you are. And I, I give myself so much grace in that experience of knowing those were my widow years. I was in a fog. I was, going you kept healing, you kept moving forward in your way. Yeah, I did. And you're I talking I think, to your person, you're healing, you're you're moving forward. You really, you know, I yeah, love the chapter when things started working out for you after you went through all those struggles. Yeah, and it's just it was one of those things where I kept believing things were gonna be okay. God had a plan. I wanted the blueprints, I was not allowed to see them. But I think it's really important to give yourself the space and the time. It might take six months, it might take a year, it might take three. But know that it really does, you know, I can't guarantee that, but it really does get better. And there are so many people like Irene, like me, that want to help you, that want to say, we did it and we're okay. And it is ugly. And some days are ugly. Some days are beautiful. And in my book, I'm really gritty and real. Like one day I'll be like, oh my gosh, today's great. You know, I almost feel like today is wonderful. Oh my gosh. You know, I went to the mall. I've not really, but I feel like that's how cheery yeah, I was. Yeah, I get that, sure. And then the next day, I'm like, oh, I'm so crying. But that's really what the it grief is. Grief is like that. Grief is like It's that. a roller coaster. And once that yes. bar locks you down and you yes. go off the tracks, like it or not. But you know what? Ride the roller coaster. Submit to it. I know that, like I said with the shows, even though I'm in really happy and in a good place, I know that if I were to you know, I'm eight years out now. I know you're way more than me, Irene, but it's, I don't often look at pictures of him and it's not because I can't, it's because it's, it's weird for my head to try to format that, to try to, oh yeah, I do remember you. And it's hard because it doesn't, it makes me almost feel guilty. Like I should remember more, but it's my health moving forward, moving through the motions when it's his birthday or anniversary, different things. I'll do a post on social media. This is, you know, this would have been our 17th wedding anniversary. Like I will next week. And, um, 
I think it's really important to honor those things, but it's really important to honor that I've succeeded. I'm making it. I'm doing all those things. I talk about in the book how, um, you know, how to revamp birthdays, anniversaries, holidays. You oh, your book to... is wonderful for all that. Absolutely. Thank you. It's just, you have to figure out, you know what, I'm going to put on my bigger girl or boy pants now. And I'm going to say they're not here and this effing sucks and it is not fair but I'm here and I have to do something about it. And some of them might be great holidays. Some of them might not, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're trying, you're doing the effort and you're trying and you will really surprise yourself the layers of strength that you have. And I think that you will be quite pleasantly surprised at what life brings you. So now with all of this, everyone wants to buy your book. Wife, widow, now what? How I navigated the cancer world and how you can too. Where can they find your book and how can people connect with you, Rachel? Yeah, so like I said, I initially wrote it for cancer. It's, you know, it's my version of eat, pray, love. It's my version of how life throws you a grenade and you go from A to Z, A to Z back up to A and all these things. And it's, I think it's a good read for anybody. I think it's really important if you're like, hey, you know, my neighbor might be going through something. I don't know how to support them and their sister-in-law is sick and they don't know what to, give them the book. You know, Absolutely. All those, all those things. So you can find it. It's exclusively on Amazon. I am just starting a Wife Widow Now What page. It will probably take me a few weeks to get up, wifewidownowit.com. But you can find Wife Widow Now What on Instagram and Facebook and ask me Let's questions say or whatever so you really like. get it. Yeah. Wife widownowwhat.com, right? Yep, that's yep, that's what it will be, yep. But for now, you can find me, Wife Widow Now What, um, on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. And I have different articles I write with different perspectives of how to, that I've written for blogs and things for different organizations on ways to look at your grief, ways to think about your grief, ways to equip yourself with the skills and the tools and, you know things like that. So I have all those posted as well. And of all people on this, in this universe, Miss Rachel, what is your tip for finding joy in life? I think one of the greatest gifts that we have, well, two of them, one of them is the human connection. I have alarms that go off on my phone and sometimes I don't adhere to all of them right away. And it might be snoozed or might be the next time it does a week later, but I have alarms set to check in with people. I think that it's really important. The human connection is it's free. It doesn't cost us anything. You can send someone a text. I'm thinking about you. One of my biggest supporters, amazing friends was close friends with my husband. The one that deemed me a unicorn. <laughs> I sent her a text today and it was one like where you do I, and then send L and then send. And I wrote, I love you. And she just wrote back LOL, but I'm like, you know what? She just felt a little bit of love this morning randomly. She's taking care of her three kids underneath six. Somebody needs that. But it's it's one of those things, just if you know someone's going through a hard time or whatever, just shoot them a text, just let them know, um, go get them. Because groceries. that brings you joy, right? When you do that. It that does, it does. Because the things that I wasn't good at asking, wasn't good at doing, all these things I discuss in there, how to help yourself, how to help other people. I think the greatest thing that brings me joy is laughter. I am watching Cheers for the nth time and Cliff Clavin and Carla and Sam Malone. Oh my goodness. And Norm Peterson, they bring me so much joy. 
I think it's just, it's so amazing that we have access to these things. And it's funny to explain to my 10 year old, you know, if you missed it when I was little, if you missed it, you missed it. It didn't come on again, but just, just being able to belly laugh, to have something on even in the background. I really love like just a good song, just, you know, Sir Duke or Superstition by Stevie Wonder, you know, Born to Run by Bruce or, you know, just those things and being out in nature. I don't do it enough, but being out in nature that just, that gives me a lot of joy. There are so many things we can do that are free, that are um, freeing. And I just think it's wonderful because those, the laughter, the connecting with someone and just being out in nature and exposing yourself to the positivity there's no other way to put it, but they make you feel alive. And when you've been through what we've been through, so much illness, so much death, it takes you, you think about how like the sun revolves around the moon and how it's really slow, you know, all the orbits of everything. It takes us time to craft that and we're revolving and we're revolving, but we can revolve and pick the positive things that we want along the way. And when you do that, life just is more joyful. That's beautiful. And I want to tell everyone that your book is so helpful and wise. And it gives its readers a raw and honest firsthand account of the impact a serious illness and catastrophic event can have on a person, while also informing how these challenges can successfully be navigated. I especially love and respect, Rachel, how you journeyed through all your daunting challenges towards love and rebirth by continually choosing to strive for happiness and fulfillment with positivity and gratitude. I think that's one of the most wonderful messages that comes from your book. So I want to thank you from my heart for this compelling and touching interview that's likely going to inspire many others. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on irenewineberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.